since we were last here, but uh, uh, we hope that we can get to uh, know you and to share fellowship uh, with you. Uh, David and Vivian have always coincided with us on our visits to Boca, and so we've become very good friends um, on both sides of the Atlantic. When they've come to the UK, we've been able to uh, pick them up and entertain them for a little while and so on. And uh, so it was good that David was able to come down just for a few days now, and then we'll look forward to seeing him uh, later on in the winter. And just incidentally, the lady sat next to him is my wife. Okay. <laughs> well, I didn't want people to misunderstand, David. You know, I just thought that I would clarify that. <laughs> Well, I want to look at a subject over our two Wednesday evenings together that is not entirely inappropriate uh, to that which is uh, going through our minds just at the moment this evening. And uh, in order to do that, we're going to read from 2 Corinthians, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and chapter 5. Second Corinthians and chapter 5. Paul, of course, is the writer of these words. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. If indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Well, let's pause in our reading there. I believe it's true to say that as believers and as we grow older, our ties to this earth become more tenuous. That was Paul's experience, and I believe that that is how it should be. And in this chapter, the Apostle expresses his longing for heaven. He describes some of the blessings of heaven that make it possible. In fact, not just possible, but actually desirable that all believers face death confidently. Now, we have some young people here this evening, and that's wonderful. And I hope that you won't feel that because we look at this particular subject that it's irrelevant to you because you're young and therefore you have a long life ahead of you, and we trust that that is so. But of course, none of us can be certain. Physical life is uncertain. 
And for Paul, the man who's writing these words, it was a very real possibility. As he continued in his ministry, hostility had escalated among the Jews who plotted to take his life, but also among the Gentiles who saw him as a threat, uh, not only uh, as far as their religion is concerned, but also as far as their political status was concerned. And so Paul, as we find in the New Testament, is continually being persecuted. And he realizes that any moment he could lose his life. And the sense of imminent death comes through in this letter many, many times. If you just look back to chapter 1, in verses 8 and 9, he says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Now, we don't know precisely what that was, but he himself felt that he was under a sentence of death. And we find that same attitude expressed in very clear terms in chapter 4, and where in verse 7 he talks about having the treasure of the gospel in jars of clay or in earthen vessels. And he says in verse 8 of that fourth chapter that because we represent God, because we serve him, he says we are hard-pressed on every side, crushed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. And then in verse 9, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus. And then in verse 11, we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. And then in verse 12, death is at work in us. He recognized that there was always the possibility of death from those who hated him. And then in chapter 6 and verse 4, he mentions great endurance troubles, hardship, and distresses. And the same chapter, verse 5, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, in sleepless nights and hunger. And then down in verse 9, he says, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed. In chapter 7 and verse 5, he refers to conflicts on the outside, and fears within. And then, of course, the familiar text in chapter 11 and verse 23, he says, I've worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. He goes on to refer to that five occasions when he received 39 lashes, the three times he was beaten with rods, the occasions when he was stoned, three times shipwrecked, spending a night and a day on the sea. The dangers, the labors, the hardships, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, without food, cold and naked. And all of those verses simply to say that this man lived on the brink of death. He recognized that every morning when he first opened his eyes, this could be his last day. And the question that that raises, of course, is how did he deal with that possibility? How could he face the threat of death every day? And the first thing that comes to our mind, the first thing that we would wonder would be, well, would it make him a little more um, careful about the way in which he presented his message? In other words, a little less courageous. 
After all, it was the preaching of the gospel that brought these things upon him. If he just toned it down a little, perhaps uh, related a little better to the culture, demonstrated a less confrontational attitude, perhaps he could mitigate a little bit this threat of death. And we have to say that any normal person recognizing that because he was preaching so boldly, it could cost him his life, might be tempted at least to tone it down a little, but not this man. As you look at his life, the more the hostility increased, the more the persecution increased, the more courageous he became. And even when he was dragged in before the authorities, who held his life in that sense in their control, he never ever toned his message down. In fact, he escalated it. He never lost his boldness. He never lost his conviction. He never lost his courage to proclaim the truth. And that was the very reason why his life was threatened. So here is a man who can face death confidently. And that's what this passage in chapter 5 is about. He faced death boldly. I'll go further than that. He faced death gladly. And I might go even further than that, and I think one verse in particular proves it. He preferred it to life. And I say that because when you get to that point, that takes the entire sting out of persecution. If the worst thing that a man could do to him was to take his life, and Paul was all ready for that, in fact, it was something that he preferred, then there was a sense in which persecution had lost its threat. Here was the man who wrote to other believers, you remember, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The man who could say again to those same Philippian believers, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. It held no fear. In fact, he welcomed it. You see, he had some idea what was on the other side of death and he preferred it. Given the choice, he would rather die. Now that is a contrast, isn't it, to the way in which so many cling to life. And because of that, Paul can say in verse 6 and verse 8, we are confident. It means to die with hope. It means to die happily. The verb actually comes from the word which means good cheer. And this was not something that was built on an emotional high or a temporary feeling of excitement as far as the apostle was concerned. Uh, this was a settled feeling. This was a constant assurance that remained with him. At all times, his preference would be to die. Now, the previous chapter, which we're familiar with, of course, provides something of a foundation for this, where he makes reference to his trials, which he considers, do you remember the words, light and momentary. Those are his trials. I've, I, I read some of them, didn't I, as he quotes them here in Corinthians. And he sums them all up as light and momentary, because, he says, they are achieving for me an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You have the contrast there between something that is light and something that is momentary. 
as against something that is eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And what he's looking forward to, which is glory, and unseen, he says in that chapter, by the physical eye, he says is eternal. And so he is willingly and gladly able to place his life on the line for eternal glory. Now I've said that uh, maybe you feel I've been exaggerating this preference for death. Well, uh, my Bible in verse 8 reads, I would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Well, it couldn't be clearer than that, could it? There is a preference. Now, all of this has a reality for each one of us. Because unless the Lord returns, uh, we're going to die. Through illness, accident, old age, some criminal action. Or we have to say, maybe through persecution and martyrdom. Who knows? How then do we face the inevitability of death? One commentator describes this certainty in these words. He says, Death will come to you and me like an utterly unsympathetic landlord waving an eviction notice. And that eviction notice will be executed the moment the landlord arrives. Well, does that uh, worry you? And what we're saying this evening is that it shouldn't if you're a believer, because when that unsympathetic landlord comes and gives you an eviction notice, then you're not homeless. You're not homeless. The arrival of that sympathetic landlord is not going to leave you without a home. Because there is waiting for you and there is waiting for me a far more grand and glorious dwelling in a far better neighborhood than we live in now. And consequently, Christians should have no fear of death. The process causes us some concern. Let's be honest, doesn't it? But the Christians should have no fear of death. And that is what the apostle is expressing here. And that's very helpful because, you see, he's not simply expressing his feelings. He's writing to encourage people. And uh, he pours out all of this information about the imminence of death because, not least, he wants his friends not to be too fearful, not to be too concerned about him because he's saying, death is actually something that I prefer. Some of the sorrows of this life are worse than death for the believer. Some of the disappointments of this life are worse than death for the believer. Death is not something that causes the believer sorrow or depression or disappointment. More often than not, it is living in this world that produces those things. So does that mean that we don't need to bother to look after ourselves? Not at all. As long as the Lord can usefully use us here on earth, we should do what we can to look after ourselves so that we can be effective for him. 
Paul himself says, verse 9, and we'll look at this next week, God willing. We make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. Or as he tells the Philippians in chapter 1 and 24, if I stay here, it's for your benefit, but I would really prefer to be up there. Unless there is some compelling usefulness that we have to God here, we actually should be eager and anxious and prefer to be gone. We should anticipate death in the way in which Paul is able to anticipate death. See, the Christian's approach to death is an ultimate way in which he or she can glorify God. Death is the last and perhaps the best opportunity for believers to have a bold and a courageous faith on show. And you and I have seen that in the lives of our fellow believers, haven't we? If I cannot face this particular threat, if we use that word, with joy and anticipation and gladness and happiness and confidence and excitement, then that is less than Christian. Because I was made for heaven. And everything that really matters is there. When a Christian can look death in the eye and not blink, when we see dying as preferable, that is a testimony of our faith that transcends all testimonies. It says our hope is real. Does it work in the hour of death when everything is on the line? Well, here Paul is our example. He faces death with joyous anticipation because he believes it will usher him into glory, into the presence of the Lord whom he loves and serves, into the blessings of heaven with all of its perfection for which he was created and for which he was redeemed. But what Paul does in these verses before us is to give us four reasons why he prefers death to the continuance of life. And what I want us to do is to look at the first this evening and then, God willing, to look at the remaining three next Wednesday evening. So here is the first. The first reason why Paul prefers death to continuing to live life here on earth. I've called it the anticipation of the next body. The anticipation of the next body, and it's there in verse 1. Now we know, he says, if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now notice firstly, this isn't a wish. This isn't a possibility. This isn't a vague hope. We know, he says, there's a better body to come. We know, we know that if this earthly tent is destroyed, we have a building from God. Well, how do these Corinthians, to whom he is writing, how do they know this? Well, in the first letter that Paul wrote them, he wrote in detail about this. And in a moment or so, we're just going to look at that. In that wonderful 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he describes in some detail the blessings brought to us 
through the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And included in those blessings is a glorious new body. So that the knowledge that the apostle is referring to is a particular knowledge that has been granted to Christian believers by way of revelation. That knowledge does not spring from human intellect. It doesn't spring from fantasy. It comes from the revelation of God in Scripture. The Bible promises resurrection. Well, how does he begin here in verse 1? Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, uh, and I think, why does he put the word if in there? Uh, Isn't death a certainty? Well, not necessarily. You see, Paul was keenly aware that the Lord Jesus was going to return. And then if that happened in his lifetime, then he wouldn't need to pass through death. And when he tells the Corinthians uh, back in the first letter that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, maybe, who knows? The apostle even had in his own mind the hope that he might be among that number that would not sleep. And that would be his first choice. And it would be ours as well, wouldn't it? We love our family. We love our friends. We don't want to leave them. And it would be great if we could all be around until Christ returns, that we wouldn't have to suffer the loss of anyone. That would be the ideal. But if that isn't to be so, then Paul's second choice is death. If that can't happen, then, Lord, I... I just want to get to glory. That would be my preference. I wonder if that would be our order, our option, would it? First, first option, Christ's return. Second option, death. Third option, go on living. Well, Paul got the second choice. And his earthly tent was destroyed. Actually, dismantled. Is a, is a better word to use. I'm not suggesting that the, the, the translation you have in front of you is bad, but I'm saying dismantled in our day and age, perhaps, gives us a better idea of what's being conveyed here. Because the picture of a tent is wonderfully descriptive of the temporary nature of the believer's life here on earth. We're strangers. We're pilgrims. Our citizenship belongs to heaven. And Paul, frankly, is tired of this tent. He wants the building from God. The tent produces all kinds of problems that hinders his service for God. And it isn't that he's concerned about the physical as such. That's not what he's talking about. You know, we all have to live with what we've got, don't we? And we have to make the best of it. And... um, Uh, We fix it and comb it and maybe paint it a little bit and try to keep it moving. That's not the issue. Paul is not here talking about the fact that he doesn't like the shape of his nose. He's not suggesting that he wished he had better uh, muscle tone when he's talking about this uh, earthly tent. No, what he's saying is this. I'm sick of this debilitating, limiting body, this fallen flesh in which my redeemed nature exists. When do I get rid of it? I want the building from God. And then he says something interesting. He says it's an eternal house in heaven, not built 
by human hands. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, that phrase is used in a couple of other places, and the most telling comes in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11. And there it's defined very clearly. Let me read that verse to you. That verse reads, Hebrews 9:11, When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now listen. That is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. So there you have it. What does not man-made mean? Well, we read that in Hebrews 9.11. It means, that is to say, not a part of this creation. Not man-made. He refers to a resurrection body that is not earthly and is not physical. Paul says, I want a building that's not like the one that I've got here in this life. I want a permanent, fixed Settled building, made by God, not having anything to do with this creation. That's what he's saying. And he tells us it is eternal, and he tells us that it's in the heavens. In the heavens. Now, we have a son who's uh, in real estate. And I don't know whether you use this phrase over here in the States, but in Britain, it's known as the, I'll call it the estate agents, or the real estate's agent's motto. You know what it is? Location, location, location. Right? That's the estate agent's motto. (laughs) And here's the location. We have an eternal house. Not built with hands. Not man-made. It's eternal in the heavens. Now, as I suggested, and for the remainder of our time, I want us just to divert from 2 Corinthians and examine more closely this building from God that Paul refers to. And we can do that by uh, turning back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and it will be just a few pages uh, in your New Testament. One of the most wonderful passages in the whole Bible. And what Paul is doing in this chapter is showing us what we owe to the bodily resurrection of Christ. His resurrection is the guarantee of ours. And it is also the pattern for our resurrection body. But of course, Paul is writing to the Corinthians. And Corinth was a Greek city. And the Greeks did not believe in bodily resurrection. Do you remember what response this same apostle received when he made reference to that subject on Mars Hill in Athens? When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. The whole idea of bodily resurrection was repugnant because the Greeks believed that anything physical is evil. They even concocted uh, a subsidiary god, as it were, because they didn't feel that the true god could involve himself in making a material world. So they had to produce another god who would involve himself in that. That's how much they hated that which was physical and material. For that reason, they couldn't believe in the incarnation of Christ. And therefore, when Paul writes in these terms, in 1 Corinthians 15, they cannot imagine a rotted, decayed, stinking, mass 
of whatever left in a grave coming together and then coming out. And even from the human viewpoint, it looked ridiculous. They said, all right, Paul, you want to talk about resurrection, bodily, physical resurrection of the dead. Explain how this can happen. And they think they've found a real flaw in Christianity. They've seen death. They've seen decay. They know what it is for a body to rot, and their questions are not unlike some of the questions that we might get today. What about the matter of cremation? One of the objections to cremation might be the fact from some people uh, that it cannot be imagined how God is going to handle bringing those pieces of ash back together again. There may be other reasons, of course, why we would object to it, more biblical reasons. Or what of bodies blown to pieces? What of those who were buried at sea? How is God going to get ashes thrown to the wind? How is he going to find the right bones on the floor of the ocean? Where is he going to get the dust of somebody to determine from the dust of somebody else? And so on and so forth. I put down in my notes here, and I didn't want to be too flippant, this is going to be the jigsaw to beat all jigsaws, you know? Now, the two questions that are posed in 1 Corinthians 15.35 are posed in that spirit. How are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? Now, how does Paul answer that question? Well, in response, he explodes. You fool. Uh, That's the literal translation. Uh, My Bible has it a little gentler. How foolish. And the reason that Paul rebukes them is because he knows this is not the query of someone who is genuinely wanting to know an answer to the question. This is not an honest query. Perhaps... like the musing of a believer about what kind of body we might have. And maybe we've all been tempted to do that, and there's no harm in that. I I think it's a rather futile exercise, but there's no harm in it. But these people are not asking the questions in that way. They're trying to trap him. They're trying to trip him up. You see, this is typical of skeptics who think they have all the answers and they mock the truth. And the fact of the matter is they don't have the answer at all. So how does Paul answer these questions concerning the resurrected body? He shows them two things. He shows them firstly the principle, and then secondly he shows them the prototype. Firstly, the principle. And his illustration is from a seed. He uses the illustration of a seed put into the ground, something buried that produces life. He says, look, You shouldn't have a problem with the resurrection principle because you don't have a problem with the conception of harvest. You take a seed, you sow that seed, it goes into the ground, it has to die and decay before it can live. And the seed then decomposes and rises again. And it rises in a different form. And yet, in some sense, of course, it is still connected to the seed. There is still the same life principle between what you put in the ground and what eventually grows, although you wouldn't look at the two and connect them. And so he says in verses 38 and 39, and it's an important point, 
God gives it a body as he has determined. All flesh, he says, is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another. Fish another. And so on. You see, whatever you and I eat, whatever you and I do, we can't be anything other than a human being. That's what we are. This is what points up evolution as a lie because that which is of one kind cannot become another. That's what he's saying. Jesus taught this principle in relation to his own death and resurrection when he uses the very same analogy. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. It's the same idea, says Christ. I'll go into the ground, I will die, there will be an end of the old, and there will be a beginning of the new. There will be some kind of transformation that takes place. In the resurrection, Jesus' body was in some way transformed into a glorious and glorified body. So he had a body that was in all senses human. But when he went into the grave, there was something that came out of that body that was quite different. It was so glorious that no one recognized him unless he let them recognize him. Unless he clearly revealed who he was. And yet... Isn't it remarkable that when they knew who he was, they saw him the same, in that sense, as he was before. The same scars, the same features, and yet in a glorified manner. So there is a sense in which it's the same, but yet different. That was true for Christ, and Paul says it'll be true of us as well. This body goes into the grave. There's decomposition. And in a sense, in the terms of just an analogy, we're going to come out of the grave in a different way. It shouldn't, says the apostle, be more difficult to understand than a harvest. And the fact that God gives it a body as he has determined bases everything on the power of God to do what he is able to do. And let's say again this evening, God is able to do whatever he wants to do, whatever he needs to do in the matter of passing out bodies. And if God can take a little seed and give it a body that in the resurrection out of the ground is no way like the seed and yet has the same life principle, then don't underestimate the body that God can give you in resurrection. One Bible teacher writes, God has no problem when it comes to manufacture. He does not operate on the assembly line basis. He's not stuck with any model. He can make anything he wants to make. Well, that's the first thing, the principle. And then lastly, the prototype. The resurrection body, our resurrection body, is going to be different from the body that we have here. But I also believe that the bodies that you and I will possess will be different in some sense from each other. People ask whether when we get to heaven we will be like Christ. And the answer, of course, is yes. John tells us when we see him we shall be like him. But we don't believe, I think, 
that that means that we shall be lookalikes, that everybody will look like Jesus Christ? I believe the answer, therefore, to that question is no. Our likeness to Christ is in terms of glorious purity rather than an actual, can I use the word, physical appearance of a glorious body. Remember when Moses and Elijah appeared at the Transfiguration, they were given some kind of form to make them visible uh, to the disciples, and they were distinguishable from each other. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The variables are still there. Will I be like me? Yes, I believe I will be recognizable as me. But will I be the same as I am? No, not the same, but recognizable. And so you see what Paul is saying. These glorified bodies will be different from this body, but they will also be different from each other. And that is exciting. There are dear saints who have passed uh, into the Lord's presence and their spirits are there with him and they're waiting for that day when they are clothed with that body. And we look at our infirmities and our weaknesses and we want that body so much. And then just briefly as we close, from verse 42 in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul presents a number of contrasts to illustrate the differences between what we are and what we will be. Firstly, verse 42, the body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. Our bodies are subject to decay from the beginning of our existence. Uh, in fact, it wouldn't be an exaggeration to say that from the moment we are born, we are dying. And what is sown into the ground at burial is corrupt. But what is raised will be imperishable or incorrupt. That is, not subject to corruption. That body will never decay. It'll never go old, grow old. It has no time limitation. It will have no capacity to deteriorate. We will be permanently incorruptible. Verse 43, sown in dishonor, raised in glory. When God created man, he created him in his own image, and he said it was good. He gave man a position of honor just below the angels. But man, although out of all creation, had the greatest potential to express the image of God, then fell, dishonored, and scarred that image. But when we come out of that grave, we come out in glory. The full manifestation of the sons of God, the way he made us to be. And then still in verse 43, the verse that David quoted earlier, sown in weakness, raised in power. Our lives are characterized by weakness, subject to disease and death, and the ultimate weakness is in that moment that we are lowered into the grave. But we will be raised in full power to the ultimate that God has planned for a transformed body. And then verse 44, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. A natural body is a body suited for this life. That's what you've got now. But it is raised a spiritual body, a body suited for glory. Now this is where Paul clarifies the prototype. The natural body, verse 45, is illustrated by Adam. 
the first man, Adam, became a living being. He is the prototype of the natural body. Adam did not possess a glorified body. The overriding characteristic of the natural man is that he is of the dust of the earth. So it was Adam who has given us an earthly existence, and that is what we are experiencing right now. But Christ coming out of the grave has given us a heavenly existence, a body that is suited for glory, so that the prototype of the heavenly body is Christ. You want to know what he was like in his resurrection? That's what you and I will be like. Would I be exaggerating if I say in his resurrection he could appear and disappear? In his resurrection he could go through walls. In his resurrection he could transport himself from one place to the other just by a thought. In his resurrection he could sit down with the disciples and show them the scars in his hands. He could speak. He could understand. In his resurrection, he was who he was, and yet he was glorified. There was something so different, and yet there was something so the same. Now, that's the kind of body, I believe, that we're going to have. A body when all of the flesh is gone, that is, the human part that is sinful, when all that blocks the glory of God is removed, and we'll be transparent in the sense that God's glory will blaze through us. Philippi was a Roman colony. Uh, it, of course, was many, many miles from Rome, and yet anyone who lived in Philippi could claim to be a Roman citizen. And Paul wrote a letter to the believers uh, in that particular city. And he said to them, and it's significant when you remember that background, isn't it? He said to them, our citizenship, writing to believers, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, listen to this, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body our savior our lord will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body he's the prototype and says Paul here in 2nd Corinthians I want that and that's one of the reasons why I would prefer to die rather than to live he says I've got a longing for heaven because I'm anticipating the next body. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we bow uh, in your presence. We've read your word, we've heard your word. And we thank you again for all that we believe you have prepared for those who love you. And we recognize that now it just would be impossible for us to really be able to understand and appreciate all of that. And yet we thank you for that information that you have given us. 
And we pray that you will help us this evening to just be able to grasp those things that will be an encouragement to us to live for you as your servant did. To live, in fact, without the fear of death because of the fact that you've prepared for us ultimately and eventually a new body. And we look forward to that. And pray, dear Lord, that you will help us while we're here on this earth to be faithful in serving you. This is not something that we simply idle our time and wait for. But you have placed us here. And there's work to be done. And we pray that you will help us in those circumstances in which we find ourselves, perhaps in the college or school where we study, in the place where we work, in the home where Christ is unloved, in the street where we live, that we'll be able to live out these great truths and this confidence that we have that will be a blessing to those around us. And we ask our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.